Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. We'll be back in just a few seconds with Chris Hedges, and we're going to talk about Ukraine. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe, especially come to the website, sign up for the email list. If you're on YouTube, hit subscribe on YouTube. Uh, but getting on the email list is rather critical uh, because, as Chris Hedges knows, uh, YouTube is uh, not particularly democratic. Uh, they've they wiped out all of Chris Chris's shows have been taken down off of YouTube. Uh, they've tried to take our channel off. Uh, uh, looks like twice now they've, they've had to back up mostly because of an article Matt Taibbi wrote. Uh, but if you want to make sure you connect with the analysis, uh, get on our email list because uh, I wouldn't trust any of the social media platforms uh, for uh, continuing to deliver with any reliability. Uh, be back in just a few seconds. So now joining me is Chris Hedges. He's the author of 14 books, including his latest, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in American Prison. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning foreign correspondent for two de decades, 15 of them with the New York Times in Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. He has taught at Columbia University, New York University, Princeton, University of Toronto, and that's where I am right now in Toronto. He also teaches college credit courses at the New Jersey, in the New Jersey prison system through Rutgers University. You can find him at chrishedges.substack.com. I'll say it again, chrishedges.substack.com. And the reason you can find him there is because he had a show uh, on RT that was taken down uh, by most of the platforms that carried it and, and, and essentially forced it out of business. And as I said, they've taken all the shows that were, were on RT uh, down, although I think you can still find uh, Chris's show that I helped him uh, launch on Telesur. I think you can still find them on YouTube. Uh, thanks for joining me, Chris. Sure, Paul. So uh, before we kind of get into the substance of some of your recent writing about the uh, pimps of war, um, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, our, your last days at RT and uh, a, a quote from uh, something Matt Taibbi wrote as an introduction to an interview he did with you uh, on, in his column called The Censored. Uh, here's what Matt wrote. Hedges denounced Putin's invasion of Ukraine as a criminal act of aggression after it began and believes that if RT had been allowed to stay on YouTube, he, along with similarly critical former RT contributors like Jesse Ventura, wouldn't have been permitted by the Kremlin to stay on air. So is that a correct quote? And, and just talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, so I very publicly denounced the invasion of Ukraine. RT went dark six days later. They didn't say anything. They were certainly well aware of it, uh, nor did they censor my show. Uh, but I have a hard time believing, given the very harsh censorship that has been imposed on the Russian press domestically by Putin that they would have tolerated having someone like myself or Jesse Ventura uh, denouncing the war in the Ukraine. And we should be clear that Jesse and I both were essentially blacklisted for denouncing the war in Iraq. I was pushed out of the New York Times. He had just signed a contract with MSNBC 
which was in the process of getting rid of Phil Donahue because he was giving a voice to anti-war figures over the Iraq war, uh, and they just never launched uh, Ventura's show. Uh, they'd have to pay him, so he walked away, I think, with $3 million or something. Uh, and we weren't going to, neither of us were going to stand by and uh, remain silent when Russia carried out a preemptive war, which under post-Nuremberg laws is a criminal war of aggression. That would just be the height of hypocrisy. Uh, I want to be clear that the show that I, you were the uh, kind of originator of the idea to do a show with Telly Sewer. I used to film it down in Baltimore when you ran the real news. Uh, there was no difference from that show and the show I did for RT. Uh, Telly Sewer lost its funding uh, because of the collapse of the Venezuelan economy and the shift to right-wing governments. That had It was a consortium that had been funding the network in uh, Argentina and other places went right-wing. So my show lost funding. And, uh, and at that point, RT approached me about resurrecting the show uh, and just rebranding it. So there's no difference. I'm mostly authors. I'm very conscientious about reading the book, uh, the books of uh, the people I interview. Um, uh, there wasn't one show on Russia, uh, but we know why they went after it. They went after it because I was giving a voice to critics of Israel, to critics of the Democratic Party, anti-imperialists, anti-capitalists. I did a lot of shows on Julian Assange. I just came back from London. I was one of the six guests invited to his wedding. Then, of course, the prison authorities at Belmarsh with a typical institutional sadism that characterizes all prisons denied his entire guest list uh, entry into the prison for the wedding. Um, a lot of shows on mass incarceration. Uh, and so with no notice, no inquiry, nothing, six years of shows were disappeared from YouTube because they had been put out by RT, not because they had anything to do with Russian propaganda. But they know what the content of those shows were, and it's that content that has been targeted. And we know that from the 2017 Director of National Intelligence report. In the report, it's a 25-page report, seven pages are dedicated to RT, uh, and the complaints, the, the, the very specific complaints that are issued against RT have nothing to do with Rus Russian propaganda. They have to do with giving a voice to Occupy Matter activists, anti-fracking activists, third-party candidates. Uh, that's what they don't want. So uh, the invasion of Ukraine really gave uh, the security and surveillance apparatus the opening, which is, of course, bonded at the hip with Silicon Valley, the opening that it was waiting for. We already been hit with algorithms. That's not conjecture. Uh, I was writing for a website called Truth Dig, and uh, that there was also, if you go back far enough, there was an anonymous website called Prop or Not, Propaganda or Not. Washington Post wrote about it on the front page of their newspaper. Uh, we attempted to find out it's an anonymous site who was behind it. The Post said they knew but wouldn't tell us, and it attacked uh, the sites that I worked for that reprint my stuff as being essentially uh, serving uh, as an agent of Russia, or which is a ridiculous, of course. Uh, and so that gave them the opening to start using algorithms. Uh, so that last year I was at Truth Day, we all went on strike when they tried to fire, publisher tried to fire Bob Shear, and also we wanted to form a union, and then we were all fired. But that last year, uh, the IT people did a graph based on impressions. So impressions are, if you go into Google, for instance, you type imperialism, and I had written a story on imperialism recently, it would come up with anything else. Impressions 
make it so that your the algorithms is is that your story doesn't appear. Uh, you're disappeared in essence, and they've done quite effective job in disappearing Julian and, and WikiLeaks. Uh, so referrals over that last 12 month period from impressions uh, were dropped from over 700,000 to below 200,000. I'm sure they're far below that now. So we were already experiencing this stealth censorship, this shadow banning, these lack of referrals and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but then of course this became uh, much more overt. And I think what's disturbing is that the biggest cheerleaders for censorship come out of the Democratic Party. Uh, you had this bizarre uh, scene in the Congress where Democratic senators were inviting the heads of Facebook and Google and Twitter and asking them to impose more uh, censorship. You see it with Elon Musk. I'm no fan. Actually, when I was uh, disappeared from YouTube, Elon Musk tweeted out, I, I don't agree with anything he says, but I, I disagree more with uh, his removal from YouTube or something like that. So, uh, and but they're all attacking him as an oligarch, which is ridiculous because they're all oligarchs. Uh, what they want, because they don't want to deal with the structural issues that are uh, creating such economic and political uh, malaise and disenfranchisement, uh, they they kind of want to make uh, it magically disappear. Uh, through censorship. And we saw in the buildup to the uh, elections, uh, very overt censorship, uh, the New York Post being locked out of its own Twitter account when it tried to expose the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, the uh, discrediting of what was on that laptop, uh, Rus Russian, uh, out of the Russian playbook, everyone was saying, the New York Times called it disinformation. It wasn't. It was, it was true. I mean, they've had to admit retrospectively after the election that was the case. And then we saw Silicon Valley pump, we don't know because it's dark money, but hundreds of millions of dollars into campaign ads for Biden. And the quid pro quo is that the Democratic Party will not break up their monopolies. But these are opaque entities. We know nothing about them. They know everything about us that have essentially been given the power to carry out censorship. And they begin with the outliers like Alex Jones, Trump, and I was very vocal, I was on Democracy Now!, denouncing the removal of Trump from social media. I don't want to read another tweet written by Trump, but I was well aware that empowering these entities to essentially uh, make people vanish uh, uh, would uh, unleash a kind of process where critics like myself would uh, also be vanished. I didn't expect to be vanished quite so quickly, uh, but I knew it was coming. Yeah, for people that watch the analysis, you know that uh, we've suffered from the same targeting. Uh, you mentioned Julian Assange. When Julian was arrested uh, in his handcuffed hands, he was carrying a book that he held up to everyone. And it, it was my interviews with Gore Vidal. And since and Ellsberg told us the next day, he said, be careful, you're really on their radar now. And after I started doing analysis of the events of January 6th and the, saying that the day of the 6th was not the issue, it was the, it was the process that led up to the 6th where there was an attempted coup and doing stories about Christian nationalism and how strong it is in the military and in the political circles, I started getting stories uh, taken down. They gave me strike. Uh, I was up to, I think, two strikes. And only because of Matt Taibbi, uh, getting in touch with YouTube, asking them what the hell's going on, did they retreat because they were afraid of uh, Taibbi's piece. 
But we, we went from stories that were doing um, 50 to 80, 90,000 uh, views down to 2,000 and 3,000. So I commiserate with you. Uh, but let's get, let's talk about Ukraine. And I'll tie this a bit together. Uh, Chris Wallace was on Colbert, and he says, what is Putin's endgame? And I think it's a very good question. I, I can't figure out what the hell Putin's endgame is, but I have the same question for the Americans in NATO. What the hell is their endgame? So if the thesis is correct, and a lot of people seem to think so, that Putin, you know, He's not a puppet. He, he's, he may have gotten sucked into this intervention by all the buildup in Ukraine, but he decided to do it, and he launched the illegal criminal invasion, and I agree with those words. But if, the, if there's no way out for Putin of this except to go further, and that seems to be what the U.S. and NATO has created the conditions for, they, they got their foot on his neck now, and they want to you know, grind him into the dirt. Um, where's the end? There's this amazing interview where NBC asks Putin, what would you do if there was a nuclear strike on Russia? And it was your choice to, to counterattack, knowing it would destroy the world. And he says, well, what's the point of a world without a Russia? Well, we're heading into a kind of uh, no-win situation on every side. I mean, how dangerous is this moment? It's very dangerous because once wars start, and I speak from personal experience, you can't control where they go. Uh, wars have a kind of centrifugal force of their own. Uh, you see the, what happened with two decades in the Middle East. Uh, it became almost absurdist. So we arm, I think, to the tune of $500 million, the quote-unquote moderate rebels, whatever they are. That reconstitutes al-Qaeda. Uh, it creates the caliphate, which freaks us out, so we start bombing them. Uh, these are the same forces that Assad, who we're ostensibly trying to overthrow, is attacking. In essence, we, we, we function as Assad's air force. If you get, want to get really cynical, there were thousands of Hezbollah fighters. We were functioning as Hezbollah's air force. We had a tacit alliance with Iran, which is Shia, to essentially crush these Sunni extremists. I mean, it was all ridiculous. Uh, but that's what happens in war. You, you don't control it, it controls you. Uh, the, end game, the end game is to make money for Raytheon, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, all of these defense contractors. Uh, that's it. I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I reported on the revolutions in Central and Eastern Europe, collapse of the Soviet Union. We naively thought that uh, NATO had been rendered obsolete. NATO was created ostensibly to prevent Soviet expansion into Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, we, everybody was talking about the peace dividend. We wouldn't have to pump staggering amounts of resources and state funds into the military that we did during the Cold War. Well, we turned out to be very naive. The defense contractors had no in intention of downsizing uh, or creating a peace dividend. They immediately began the expansion of NATO, which was a violation of the promise that all of the Western leaders, again, I was there, Hans-Dietrich Genscher, Margaret Thatcher, James Baker, Secretary of State for Reagan, had made to Gorbachev. Uh, now there's 14 uh, countries in uh, Eastern and Central Europe that belong 
to NATO. And Ukraine is a de facto NATO country, especially now. But even before the conflict, they heavy uh, shipments of NATO weaponry, NATO advisors. Clinton promised uh, after, of course, uh, uh, lying or after the the uh, violation of the agreement with Gorbachev that there wouldn't be NATO troops stationed in Eastern and Central. Now there are thousands of NATO troops. There's a missile base in Poland that's 100 miles from the Russian border. We almost went to war with the Soviet Union when they attempted to uh, place missiles in Cuba, uh, which were 90 miles from the coast of Florida. So it was done to enrich the arms industry. It never made any geopolitical sense. You know, in fact, they were, uh, Gorbachev wanted to build a security alliance uh, with Europe that included Russia. And they were talking about uh, uh, giving Russia observer status at NATO and maybe even one day integrating Russia into the NATO uh, alliance. Uh, I don't know if they ever meant it, but that was the kind of language that was going on then. So uh, the, there was a deep betrayal uh, to Gorbachev, uh, to Yeltsin, to Putin. That's real. Uh, they were baited into the war in Ukraine. That doesn't excuse what they did. They did pull the trigger. Uh, but those are just historical facts, and, and they're ones that I reported on. So, so what should progressive people around the world be demanding now? I, I think you know, there is a kind of two camps that have emerged on the left. Uh, the larger camp, I would say, uh, that's sort of on the liberal side of the Democratic Party, but it, it, you know, the same thing exists in Europe, which condemns Russia and is kind of quiet about the role of NATO. Th then you got the flip side of that. You've got a certain section, much smaller certainly in North America, but it's certainly much quite large in the global south, that's almost primarily focused on critiquing NATO and may give it sort of a little bit of a concession. Yeah, what Russia did is illegal, but there's always a but, uh, as if Russia doesn't have its own agency here and, and isn't itself a, a part of monopoly capitalism and, and, and so on. Uh, and then... You have those, which I, I put myself more in, I'm guessing you too, that we're looking at a global system of monopoly capitalism here. And it's certainly dominated and led by the United States. And no country on earth has war crimes on its hands the way the United States does. But there's, there doesn't need to be a but in the sense that what Russia's done is part of that system of aggression, even if it's regional and nothing of the scale of the United States. So, But all that being said, um, what should we be demanding now? Because right now, both, I mean, I, we can have the same conversation about Yemen, but for now we're talking about Ukraine. In order to create public opinion to end this war, and, 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 and I have to say even more importantly, the threat of nuclear war and completely taking climate crisis off anyone's agenda for conversation. Right. So I think three things. One, uh, a moratorium on arms shipments, because the Western alliance and, and led by Washington has decided that they will turn the Ukraine into another Chechnya. Uh, they will bog Russia down in a, in a war they can't win. Or you can go back to Brzezinski's plan to bait the old Soviet Union into Afghanistan uh, and then funding and arming what became the Taliban and, of course, al-Qaeda. Uh, so that, in their parlance, they want to make Russia bleed. But, of course, the people who truly bleed are the Ukrainians. So 
uh, a moratorium on weapon shipments, uh, a demand, of course, that Russia withdraw its forces from the Ukraine, and I think that Russia's demand that Ukraine remain a neutral country is a legitimate demand given Russia's history. Twice in the last century, they were invaded by the Kaiser in World War I, later by the Nazis in World War II, the century before that by Napoleon. Uh, the, the Germans laid waste uh, to much of the Soviet Union. That historical trauma is real. Uh, they don't see NATO, nor should they, as a defensive force. Ask anyone in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria if NATO is a defensive force. I mean, they'd find that ludicrous. So uh, it's an expanding force that is attempting to uh, create U.S. hegemony in the face of declining economic hegemony. Uh, and this is, of course, the great conundrum that uh, at the end of empire, as you lose power and lose influence, you begin to engage in these military acts of adventurism that are self-defeating. And that goes all the way back to Vietnam. I, I study classics, as you know. Um, you saw that with the Greek empire, where they expanded, Thucydides writes about it, the, and uh, they finally attempt to invade Sicily and their uh, fleet is sunk and their uh, soldiers are massacred and that the, inner, the empire disintegrates. Same with the late Roman Empire, where uh, they're fielding a one million man army uh, that becomes like the Pentagon, a state within a state, sucking all of the resources out of Rome, uh, totally controlling the political process. You can't defy the military from either party. Uh, we see that in the unanimity of these massive budgets and deification of the military by both Republicans and Democrats. And so in the end, the Praetorian Guard is auctioning off the uh, emperorship to the highest bidder. Um, that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, we're also flirting, I mean, the sinking of this uh, Russian uh, naval vessel, uh, which uh, appears to have been with missiles, uh, uh, Ukrainian missiles, has ratcheted up. I mean, Putin has now made a threat uh, towards the United States, which is giving, I think it's 13 billion plus uh, dollars worth of weapons. Uh, Germany has lifted its ban on the export of weapons and it, it said it will increase its defense budget by close to three, uh, three times what it has been. And then we'll spend 2% of GDP, which will make the German military uh, the third largest military in the world after China and the United States. So um, go back and read uh, Barbara Tuckman's uh, The Guns of August. The, the, uh, an incompetent global leadership, in this case monarchies in Europe and Russia, stumbled into mass suicidal slaughter. Uh, and uh, I don't trust these people, especially given the fact that the commercial interests, the profits of the arms industry are what drives these conflicts. The only reason we stayed in Afghanistan. I mean, we know from the Afghan papers that were released by the Washington Post that both the military and political leadership uh, understood that this was a quagmire, that we were never going to uh, dominate Afghanistan. But we stayed in years, and as we did in Vietnam, which is, of course, what the Pentagon Papers revealed, we stayed in because war is a very lucrative business. Uh, and uh, they will stoke, uh, con they have been stoking conflicts with Russia through the expansion of NATO. They stoke conflicts with China 
over Taiwan and, uh, uh, and, and provocations within the South China Sea. Um, and that keeps their uh, profits uh, uh, high and uh, the infusion of state money into their industries uh, at Cold War levels. And that's, that's all they want. What, what the consequences of it, they seem either ignorant of or uh, you know, cynically ignore. It's an insane game of chicken. They, they seem so sure this won't go nuclear that you can take it right up to the edge of going nuclear. But there's a serious conversation about supposedly, quote unquote, low yield nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons. But the word that's missing in all of this, and I, people watch the analysis know I'm working with Ellsberg doing a documentary series based on his book, Doomsday Machine. But that's the word that's missing, doomsday machine. There actually are legitimate, real doomsday machines in Russia and the United States. And no country, Russia or United States, is going to lose a tactical war, nuclear war. If they think they're losing, it goes up to the next stage. There's no way there's such a thing as a contained nuclear war. But they are playing, talking in the press, as if you could have such a thing. Well, you have the architects of this uh, provocation with Russia, the neocons, liberal interventionists, people like Robert Kagan and uh, Elliot Abrams. And, and remember, I dealt with these people all the way back in Central America. Elliot Abrams and Robert Kagan were uh, two of the figures who, within the Reagan administration, were tasked with discrediting everything I and other reporters uh, were reporting out of uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala uh, to back these military dictatorships, or in the case of Nicaragua, the illegally funded Contras uh, that were trying to topple the Sandinista government. They're the same people. It doesn't matter how often they're wrong. Uh, they, of course, have uh, you know complete historical amnesia. It's always 1938 in Munich, uh, and uh, the new Neville Chamberlain, uh, through impeachment, is about to sell out to uh, the the Nazis. Of course, everyone we fight, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin, is the new Hitler. And then they just ignore the entire Cold War, War period, where the United States overthrew governments right and left. Indonesia, Guatemala, Iran, uh, Chile, where the CIA orchestrated the assassination of the Army Chief of Staff and President Salvador Allende, the Bay of Pigs, and on and on and on. Um, and uh, Kagan, Robert Kagan, just wrote in Foreign Affairs uh, a long essay that said, one, we should have attacked Russia earlier, uh, and don't worry about the bomb, Putin won't use it. Um, these people are, uh, they know nothing about war, of course, and very little about foreign policy. Uh, and they're lavishly funded by the arms industry, all of their think tanks, the Brookings Institute, the Project for the New American Century, the Institute for the Study of War. It's all funded by the arms makers. So they're kind of the pimps. I wrote a column called The Pimps of War. That's long been their role. And that's why they're never disappeared from your screens, no matter how wrong they are. They're the people who gave us Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, uh, just one fiasco after another. And yet uh, they just pop right back up on your screens. Well, that's because they do the bidding of uh, the corporate elite, and, and in particular, uh, those corporations that profit off of war. 
Uh, and that's why people such as myself, I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I speak Arabic because I don't parrot back the dominant narrative, despite actually understanding the region and understanding the instrument of war. I'm shut out. Um, I, I remember Gore Vidal, who used to be uh, on mainstream television all the time uh, for the same reasons in the last few years of his life. Uh, was completely, almost completely shut out of mainstream television in, in the United States. They still show up in Europe, but the U.S. American media essentially sidelined them. Um, I don't want to get into the depth of it right now, but maybe in another interview we will. But I, I do want to touch on it. Um, there, the role of NATO and the United States in creating the conditions for uh, Russia to invade Ukraine, it doesn't explain not just the fact that Russia has committed crimes, but there's internal processes within Russia. The, the rise of, of, of the Putin-led state, uh, I, the ideology of, of, of nationalism, the uh, nostalgia for empire and, and such, and, 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 the, and, and a legitimate uh, not being treated with respect as a real rising power, it's so similar to what happened with Germany uh, in terms of the lead up to World War II, uh, that the, in terms of this uneven development of capitalism, uh, United States is gonna have to get through, you know, accept that there, it's no longer a, a single superpower world, but they do not want to accept it as much as that quote of Putin, what's good is a world without uh, Russia, it's like the Americans believe what good is a world without United States as the single superpower? Yeah, well, that's the problem. They're already not the single superpower. They're, you're dealing, especially with emergent powers like China, uh, which economically will, uh, I think within a decade, I don't remember the exact figure, will dwarf the economic power of the United States. Uh, and that decline, which largely they orchestrated, of course, through deindustrialization and trade deals and austerity programs and everything else. I mean, they cannibalize the country from within, and then they're seeking an aggressive military response to the loss of economic hegemony. And that, of course, is part of the reason they want to destroy the Russian economy. Uh, and, and all of the sanctions are really designed, of course, to overthrow Putin. I just want to go back. I mean, we, Yeltsin was a U.S. puppet. Um, he was widely unpopular in 96 when he ran for re-election. Uh, Clinton, the Clinton administration orchestrated a $10 billion IMF loan, of which an estimated $1.5 billion of that went into reelecting Putin. Uh, he was, of course, a fall-down alcoholic and everything else. And, uh, and so, and then you saw the selling off of state industries at bargain basement prices to uh, Russian oligarchs who became obscenely wealthy. Uh, you know, all of this, there was a kind of blowback that Putin tapped into, a kind of humiliation that Russia felt. Historical analogies are always a little difficult, but that, you're right to bring up the issue of Weimar in that sense, that same kind of humiliation. There's another analogy with Weimar. It's 1932, Franz von Papen uh, becomes the head of government. Uh, he's from the old aristocratic elite. They're frightened of the fascists. They want to bring back the Ancien Regime. But what von Papen and everyone hasn't figured out is that nobody wants the Ancien Regime back. 
they are beholden to uh, the dictates of international bankers who, after 19, the 1929 crash, they had to take out tremendous loans. They actually cancel unemployment insurance in Germany. Well, you've seen a very similar kind of situation here. Oh, and remember, there was heavy censorship against the Nazis. Heavy censorship. I mean, they were actually outlawed as a political party. So you see the same kind of reaction by the Biden administration, that political stagnation, that inability to deal with the very distressing uh, issues that have disenfranchised, especially the white working class, and their response is censorship, censoring critics such as myself, wiping Donald Trump off of uh, social media, which I opposed, of course, uh, because they start with him and, and that gives them the kind of precedent to go after the rest of us. But they want to kind of magically make the problem disappear through censorship rather than addressing the social dislocation and rupturing of social bonds that have created. And we're about to see blowback in the midterms. Even the Democrats fully accept that they will lose control of Congress. And I think it's highly likely, I mean, even his Build Back Better bill is gutted. He hasn't fulfilled his most tepid campaign promises to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. His COVID policies are actually worse than Trump's, if you can imagine. Uh, and so uh, I expect that after a resounding victory by the Republican Party, which has become completely cultish around Trump, and it is very dangerous, you will see Trump or a Trump anointed figure in the White House, a Pompeo, a DeSantos, a Cotton, I don't know, maybe someone else. Um, and that does have a kind of historical analogy. So the inability or refusal on the part of the Democratic Party to address the real issues and attempt to uh, blame everything on a foreign power, in this case, Russia, and censor their critics is, uh, you know, ultimately extremely self-defeating and very dangerous. And the uh, other than the threat of nuclear war, and I, again, it's funny to even say that because it's very real. And, and if it happens, we, I guess we're going to stop analyzing things. Um, but the climate crisis is so severe, is so imminent. Uh, we are going to hit, at best case scenario, 1.5 degrees warming in what? 12 years, 13 years, you know, by, by 2033. And that date, that number is not really knowable because there's enough going on that that could be unpredictably sooner in terms of what's going on in the oceans. We could be hitting 1.5 degrees, you know, by the end of this decade or even sooner. The, the extent and depth of the climate crisis and that millions and millions of people from the global south having to head north, uh, the decimation of uh, agriculture in almost the entire Midwest of the United States, maybe, and, and maybe as soon as within 20 years. And, and, and you know, what's needed is such a radically different posture, positioning, policy than we have. For example, if there was any rationality in this world, U.S. and China would get together and offer Russia a Marshall Plan to transition off fossil fuel. I mean, you know, the, well, but the, is, whole, the whole war on Russia has seen the United States ramp up the fossil fuel industry. I mean, they can't pump it out fast enough. Biden's asking the Saudis to pump out more oil. It's had the opposite effect. Well, and we also have to recognize that in the short term, there's going to be some pretty dark fallout 
from Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a major exporter of food. Uh, the the uh, ramping up the the or, or you know cutting off Russian oil. Uh, we've already seen it uh, with the rising price of gas uh, will fuel the inflation that's already over eight uh, percent. This is really dangerous uh, because that kind of economic assault is something that uh, most American families that are hanging on by their fingertips that can't even, according to polls, pay a $400 emergency bill are not going to be able to cope with. And the political response, uh, especially in a dysfunctional corporate state, uh, is one that uh, fuels the kind of authoritarianism and neo-fascism that is already uh, firmly implanted within the body politic of the United States through Christian fascism. And I wrote a book on it, American Fascist, the Christian Right, the War in America. I took a lot of grief at the time for the title, but I think because I come out of the church, my father was a minister and I graduated from seminary, I understood perhaps in a way that others who were less religiously literate didn't, that this was a political movement, that this uh, replicated the so-called German Christian church in the Nazis, which was pro-Nazi, and that fused the iconography and language of the Christian religion with the party and the state, which is, of course, what they've done. Jesus didn't come to make us rich. These mega churches prey on the despair of their congregants in the same way that Trump preyed on the despair of people in his sham university or the, his casinos or anywhere else. And, uh, and so that ideological void that, that Trump exhibited, he doesn't have any ideology of his own, actually, uh, was rapidly filled by the Christian right. I think it will come back in a more organized form through a Pompeo or a Cotton or someone else. It will come back now seeking vengeance for January 6th, for the deplatforming of uh, their chief spokespeople, including Trump. Uh, uh, I think things could get very, very ugly. And then, of course, on top of this, America has within its DNA this... Uh, you know, uh, deep violence that has just characterized our society from the inception. So, yeah, I'm, I, I don't see us headed in a good place. Yeah, I just to add to what you said, uh, and now talking to sort of liberal Democrats, this focus on the demonization of Russia and Russian culture, Russian language, uh, you know, of course, attack denounce the invasion, yes, demand Russia get out. Uh, but, but what's going on, the fascization that's going on inside the United States and what that's going to mean, not just in terms of people's political rights, this growing strength of Christian nationalism, that one looks like it's going to take power in Congress, two could well take the White House, and then f say goodbye to any climate policy, because for some reason, climate crisis, climate science denial is a big piece of Christian nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. At that point. And, and we have to remember that the Christian right is quite strong within the military and especially combat units, most of which are white. Uh, so, and within law enforcement, you know, when they send out uh, notices about potential right-wing terrorism, they don't, they won't ship it out. I'm talking about Homeland Security and the FBI. They won't send it out to local police departments anymore because uh, all of these figures that they're targeting are tipped off by law enforcement. Um, so there are all sorts of signs 
of serious cracks within the edifice uh, and the pressure of an economic tsunami exacerbated, of course, by the climate crisis because crop yields inevitably will decline, uh, you know, make a kind of perfect storm in terms of uh, creating uh, a very dangerous political environment. The uh, corporate Democrats seem to think, as they did with law and order, that if they could be more for mass incarceration than the Republicans, they would take that card off the Republicans' table. Schumer even talks about this openly uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, his biography, I think it was. Now, if they can become the strongest voice of uh, summoning up the demons of the Cold War, then they're going to take that card away. But they don't seem to understand that most of the working class that votes for Trump and Republican, they don't give a damn about uh, Putin as the demon. If anything, large sections of them think of Putin as one of the defenders of Christian nationalism. He's kind of a hero for them. So that, that's not something that's going to help them. Instead of focusing on what the hell would make people's lives better, they want, you know, Russiagate and now, they, now, now this. Well, they can't because they're controlled by their wealthy donors and by their corporate backers. I mean, that's who they work for. If you took away that money, uh, these figures like uh, Pelosi, Schumer, Clinton, it wouldn't exist. They are creatures of this system. They are sustained by the system. Their power with both uh, Pelosi and Schumer comes from their... Uh, power to funnel money to their anointed candidates. It's why AOC uh, has become so domesticated. Uh, and so the entire system uh, has, has elevated them to a position that if it was a functioning democracy, uh, would not see them hold power. And I think they've just decided that uh, they're going to keep their first class cabins, uh, even if the ship goes down. Um, uh, and that's it. But th there's no possibility within the Democratic Party for reform. It doesn't even function as a normal party. The base is irrelevant. It's trotted out for the political spectacle, but it doesn't have any say in who the candidates are. Uh, and then, of course, we saw all of the nefarious methods used to destroy Sanders uh, in both of the elections. Uh, stealing caucuses, invalidating independent voters, uh, most of whom are young uh, and would vote for Sanders, uh, disqualifying large numbers of uh, people uh, on Democratic primary election rolls that would vote, uh, potentially would vote for Sanders, using the DNC as an instrument against Sanders, uh, forcing, as Obama did, other candidates to drop out uh, and throw all their weight behind Biden. Remember, Biden was such a disastrous candidate when the primaries began that they uh, recruited Michael Bloomberg as their savior. Well, that didn't really work out very well. So uh, it's uh, the system is, has seized up. It's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't function. It functions as the way it's been designed, which is to consolidate the power and the wealth of an oligarchic elite, but it doesn't function in terms of responding to the legitimate grievances and needs and rights of the citizenry. And, uh, and that's what's so dangerous. And the Democrats are as complicit in this 
as the Republicans. I mean, in essence, there is no Republican Party anymore. It's a cult around Trump and the establishment Republican figures, the Mitt Romneys, the Liz Cheney's, the Bushes, they've all joined uh, the Republican, the, the Democratic Party. I mean, they, they against Trump and all of the neo, a lot of the neocons too, uh, Robert Kagan, all these figures I mentioned before. Uh, Chris, so before, before we end, let me, let's go back to Ukraine. Uh, when we're talking about what a peace deal might look like, I mean, eventually there's, there's got to be something, uh, but how many, how much of Ukraine is destroyed and how many lives are lost uh, before there is some kind of deal? Because this, uh, I guess this ends in some sort of stalemate militarily. Uh, but, that, but that said, what is the solution in terms of Donbass, especially Lugansk and uh, uh, Donetsk? That, that goes back to the overthrow of Yanukovych and. 2014, which was led by the U.S. government. We know from a leaked phone conversation, Victoria Nuland, uh, at the time working for the Obama administration. She had been, by the way, Dick Cheney's uh, senior uh, foreign policy advisor. So these, again, these neocons just flip from party to party. Uh, they had pumped $5 million into the Ukraine, supporting opposition movements. But in this leaked phone call, uh, she is heard listing off who she wants, who the U.S. wants running the government. And, of course, those are the people who end up running the government. Uh, and this, of course, frightened, as it should, the Russian-speaking minority uh, because of what the opposition embraces, this kind of Ukrainian nationalism. I lived in Croatia, by the way, under Tuzman. They resurrected all the old fascist symbols of the Ustasha state. Uh, and made war on ethnic minorities uh, like uh, the Serbs and Muslims who lived in Croatia, in fact, expelled through ethnic cleansing, many of them. So uh, the Russians had every right, the Russian-speaking uh, population in Ukraine had every right to feel threatened and worried. Uh, there was a WikiLeaks cable from 2008 written out of Moscow that was leaked uh, that talks about uh, provoking Russia and, and describes Ukraine as being a flashpoint that would draw both the United States and Russia into a proxy conflict, which is, of course, what has happened. So, uh, again, it's there's a lot of legitimate concern on the part of the Russian-speaking autonomous regions within the Ukraine. The Ukrainian government never implemented the Minsk agree, uh, agreement. Uh, so, uh, again, it's all this kind of chronicle of a war foretold. Well, I think as long as the West keeps pushing in the type, the, the, the quantity of weaponry that is pouring into the Ukraine, as we saw with the war in Afghanistan or as we saw in Chechnya, th there won't be any incentive on the part of the Ukrainians to work out a peace agreement. Uh, and uh, the war, you know, could become quite long. Uh, I mean, Grozny was basically destroyed in the same way Warsaw was by the Nazis in 44. It was leveled. Uh, and and uh, we, the, each frustration, each uh, military setback that Russia faces will incentivize it to become more and more brutal. That's what happens. So one of my Russian friends suggested what there should be is a legitimate referendum held in Donbass and, and both Russia and Ukrainian governments agree to abide by the results, that the, the region has the right 
to uh, self, you know, to independence, self-determination, if you will, um, but but not through force of arms. And I do want to say, because I, I think it's it just doesn't get noted that while the from 2014 to about 2016 or so, the Ukrainian government did kill a lot of civilians in Donbass, over 3,000. But from 2018 to 2021, until right before this Russian invasion, there was actually very few people killed. In, from 2018 to 2021, according to the uh, OSCE observer, observers, a total of 310 civilians killed in 1920, uh, 2021. There was only something like 36 civilians killed just prior to the invasion in the entire year 2021. So Russia did not invade to stop a genocide in Donbass, which is what some people use as language. That being said, there's a legitimate uh, concern and threat and a fear of uh, Nazi uh, militias and potential future attacks on Donbass. So shouldn't there be a, a call for a legitimate referendum, not done under Russian occupation, but also not done under the occupation of Ukrainian troops well, either? I think that is what the Minsk uh, agreement called for, isn't it? I'm not sure if it called for a referendum, but it certainly called for legitimate autonomy, yeah. which the Ukrainian uh, government never... The Ukrainians ignored it. And again, they yeah. never implemented it. So, you know, I've covered war for a long time. It just unfortunately does not uh, bifurcate into good and evil and black and white. And oftentimes in war, each side in their own way are complicit. Uh, and I think that's true with the Ukraine, although it's very hard to find that kind of nuanced historical understanding. Um, let's see. We, uh, just in the last few minutes, just back to the geopolitical piece of this, um, is what the United States is really trying to accomplish here, that they couldn't pry Russia away from China. So now the game is see if you can just destroy it and perhaps have a kind of regime change. No, the, the, the draconian sanctions that were imposed on Russia are self-defeating because what they've done is overturn decades of U.S. foreign policy, which is to create a Sino-Soviet split. Uh, to, this was the whole uh, China policy uh, pushed by Nixon and Kissinger. You want to keep them separate. You don't want them unified. Uh, and uh, and by, by uh, going after Russia, you've essentially, I think Putin's made, what, like 36 visits or something to China. But the big thing is they're attempting to extract themselves from the tyranny of the dollar as the U.S. reserves currency. Uh, and if that happens, we know what happened to the pound sterling in the 1950s when it was dropped as the world's reserve currency. The uh, British economy went into a tailspin. Uh, and, and that's what's so interesting to me is that uh, what will bring down the empire in particular is uh, the collapse of the dollar. Because if it's not used as the world's reserve currency through SWIFT, if they can't dominate that system, it'll lose anywhere from a third, maybe two thirds of its value. Nobody will buy treasury bonds. Uh, anything that uh, the United States imports will become prohibitively expensive and it will trigger depression on the likes of the 1930s. So, uh, and, and that's again, one of the self-defeating mechanisms that one sees in late empire, uh, along with these catastrophic military 
fiascos because they're never held accountable. There's no self-criticism. There's no ability to look back. And I think early empires tend to use military force quite judiciously. Late empires seek to solve all of their problems caused by internal decay and a loss to hegemony uh, by force, by violence. And, and, it, and it always is self-defeating. And I think that this is, again, another example of how uh, the wounds that we're inflicting on Russia will come back uh, to haunt us in, in, in uh, you know, very dramatic ways. All right. Thanks very much, Chris. Sure. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget, we need your donations uh, to do what we do. Sign up on the email list and don't forget to look for Chris on Substack. I, I, I don't have it in front of me, Chris. Tell me the Substack. Chris, that is Substack.com. Cool. All right. Thanks again.